This is the Only Human podcast from Community Radio 4 Z out of Brisbane, Australia. Zed Digital talks with Del Rice, a woman who's worked with refugees in Australia over many decades. Now, so much talk about refugees over the years, but today we're here to clear up some misconceptions more than hash it out politically. Um, specifically, we're going to discuss refugees resettled in our local Brisbane area because I have a fantastic lady with me today. Thank you for coming in. Pleasure. I'm going to let you introduce yourself and as much and as little detail as you like. Okay. Uh, my name's Adele, Adele Rice. Um, a bit scary saying your age, but I'm <laughs> 74 years old. Just let them know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have spent uh, over 50 years of that time in the service of education and uh, close to 40 years of that time in the provision of services, settlement services, which have included English language to newly arrived immigrants and refugees and their families. And uh, I've been retired now for four and a half years. And in that time, I've worked quite a bit in the not-for-profit sector on different boards. And one of the main ones is the Friends of Heal Foundation. So I'm very involved in trying to provide music therapy and art therapy for recently arrived refugees in our schools who have experienced trauma. The definition of a refugee is a person who is outside their country of nationality or habitual residence and has a well-founded fear of persecution because of their race, religion, nationality, membership to a particular social group or political opinion and is unable or unwilling to avail themselves to the protection of their country or to return there for fear of persecution. So that's the definition of refugee. We'll get it out there. Um, So I've got a question. So these people are coming from very dire situations, very dangerous situations, and there's undoubtedly going to be an impact on mental health. What do you commonly see? Is it PTSD? Well, we'd be reluctant to classify every single person with post-traumatic stress disorder, but um, certainly there would be the presentation of many symptoms. Mm. So I think when you have a broad definition like what you just read out was the UN HCR definition of refugees. And it is true that they are people seeking a safe place, seeking seeking freedom, in fact, seeking all the things that we take for granted in a democratic society, civilised society as we have here. And uh, so really they're human beings no different from ourselves, but circumstances in their country have become so difficult that they have had to flee. I think one of the key issues in the community is that they're often uh, described as illegals and so on. And I think it's important for listeners to know that it is not uh, illegal to seek asylum. So, of course, when people are fleeing places, you know, just this week, for example, in Kabul, over 75 people were killed with the bomb blast. But we might read about that in the paper or hear it on the radio. Mm. But for refugees who are here or people who are in danger even there, that is a reality. It's their cousin, their brother, their uncle who may have been killed or lost a limb. So you really have to look at where the refugees come from to know the different kinds of um, terrible circumstances that made them want to leave. Because in all my years and all my many, many 
encounters with refugees, I have never met a single refugee who does not love his or her own country and uh, who are really passionate about uh, trying to find a new country and loving that country very much. Yeah, that was one of my later questions. Um, how Do they get very homesick? Because I know if I was forced to leave my country, I think I'd be very homesick. And if you celebrate, like, um, separate from family, that would just sort of weigh on you. That's true, I think, Danica, for everyone, yeah. as you say. It's true for you. It's true for immigrants. But immigrants can often go back or they've had a chance to say goodbye. Um, you know, aunties, uncles, grandmothers, relatives. When you migrate, you migrate with choice. When you're a refugee, you flee with no choice. And when we were talking before about the mental health situations, the ones who do make the journey successfully, who do get a new life, who are settled, they feel very uh, guilty. I think it's it's like a survivor guilt mm. for all the people who are left behind who are still experiencing terrible hardships and situations and danger. So that's why uh, when you're working with refugees, it's very important to protect their identities and their circumstances and details about them because their families and relatives could still be persecuted or jailed or beaten or uh, money extracted from them in the country of origin. And I know that's certainly true for the people that um, have I have come across. Said Digital talks with Del Rice, a woman who's worked with refugees in Australia over many decades. Currently, we're on the topic of mental health impacts that can be suffered when you've had to flee your own home. And a little bit of geography information for those listening, the term Balkan countries is used to refer to a block of about 10 nations that sit between Italy and Turkey and above Greece. Are a lot of refugees, if they do have sort of um, a suffering from something, do they recognise it? Um, I think that's really quite a hard question because, yeah. you know, as I said, they're people like us and you can't say every single a refugee person or a person with that background is going to suffer to the same extent. It would depend on the age, mm. for example. It would depend on that pre-migration experience, what it was that you saw. If it was something, I mean, there are young children in therapy now who saw every single person in their family killed in front of them. There are people who uh, ran and hid in the forest when the soldiers came to their village or small place and when they went back everybody was gone. So that's intense loss or grief. There are people who have walked thousands, hundreds of miles from one place to another to get to the United Nations refugee safe place or camp and they've been strafed from the air or people have been shooting at them on the way. So, you know, I have seen young Somali people who are still scarred in the legs from gunshot wounds but the, the mental and the emotional scars can be much harder because sometimes they might say, I never saw my mother again or on that walk they might say, I turned around and my father was gone or I turned around and my baby brother wasn't there. They have literally experienced a very intense grief and loss in very um, short concentrated bursts of time. 
So, of course, their suffering is different and there are different things that, um, well, we say the word trigger quite loosely now, but things that really uh, make them remember. Um, so I do remember some students even from the Balkan countries where mm. uh, they were victims of um, a lot of sniper bullets so a student might say, Miss, I was at the window and the bullet didn't hit me, but it hit my little brother who was behind a sandbag, you know, at the back of the room. And also things like uh, the noise of ambulances or helicopters or, you know, there's a very hypervigilant reaction to a, a bang or a sound because they're people, in my case, young people who, who were going to sleep at night with the sound of gunfire and never knowing whether they would be alive for the whole of the next day. So, of course, these things impact on memory, on learning, on your state of mind, your emotional health, even your physical health. Um, and so there are many, many different ways where those things can be manifested. And when you say, do they, do they know it?, uh, that will vary too. Sometimes, mm. um, well, particularly at the school where I was, we pioneered music therapy and art therapy for young people because it was school-based. So you didn't have to miss school or stay away from school or go into a hospital setting. And it means that in those sorts of programs, through the therapies, which look like play or fun, um, they're learning uh, about themselves, they're learning how to be calm, they're learning what happens when those thoughts come into their mind, they can recognise, uh, you know, nightmares, what happens when they start uh, thinking about things again. So they can learn how to recognise those things and then they can learn strategies to help them deal with them. It's not that you're going to resolve everything or, or make everything um you know, restored to full happiness. Uh, but people can learn to have a really useful and productive life. What do refugees expect Australia to be when they come here? Look, I think what refugees expect would so much depend on the source country, which refugee camps they were in and so on. Um, I think some refugees, just uh, the ones who are fleeing from a very acute uh, situation, just expect, um, I think they used to expect anyway, to be welcomed and to be settled and to have found freedom and peace. Unfortunately, some of our policies now, our bipartisan policies, are very, very harsh and, in my opinion, unnecessarily cruel. So that's not an option for some people. Um, I think other refugees might expect that they will be reunited with their families if they have families here and that was a reason for applying for Australia. But I think you'd be shocked to know how many don't really know which country it is will take them if they mm. are going through a selection process. And for the ones that are called an unauthorised maritime arrival... You've so been listening to Only Human. By boat, ...shows are pre-recorded at the studios of Fortable Z from the Queensland University of and Technology. So on, there's been a lot Loved of... Show? Um, Why not follow uh, us on Facebook and Twitter education and subscribe to Community Radio Fortable Z at www.4zzzfm.org.au. People would have to say that has been very successful, but there are still people who would come by boat because... 
I think there's a there's a very profound saying in a book written by a refugee, no parent would ever put their child on a boat if it wasn't safer than the land. Mm. And that's a pretty significant thing to think about when it shows you the extent of the danger. Now, jumping back to our interview with Adele Rice, who we were delighted to have in. She's been appointed into the Order of Australia due to her significant service to secondary education and to the migrant and refugee community, particularly through the provision of specialist learning programs and resettlement services. She's retired from her days as an English language teacher, but still serves as a chair for the not-for-profit foundation FEEL, Friends of Heal, which provides therapy for refugees through arts and music. Um, settlement is the aim of for everybody coming here, regardless of whether you came by plane or by boat or by choice or whether you were fleeing, because we are um, an inclusive multicultural country and people uh, do need to participate. And in order to participate and have equitable outcomes in your life, then you really must have access to English language tuition and work skills and so on. So when I first started in this area as a young teacher of English to speakers of other languages, it was just after the Vietnam War, you know, Saigon fell in September 75, August, and we were absolutely inundated with Indo-Chinese people, many more than the current intake, 20,000 a year, 30,000 a year. But in those days, the government of the day, it was a Fraser government and Ian McPhee was the Minister for Immigration and John Menadou was the bureaucrat, they were very insightful days and they put together some of the best settlement programs I think the world has ever seen. Then when the next government came in, it was a Whitlam government, there was bipartisan agreement and it just shows you what can be done when you've got a humanitarian policy, a humanitarian settlement, because I think in the world, the settlement in Australia of the Indo-Chinese refugees is marked as a resounding success. That's over 40 years ago. And everywhere you go, you see the fruits of that labour and you see the benefits to our society of excellent settlement. Yeah, that's very important, that change. Um considering what it was like when you started and what it was like when you retired. That's such almost a, a 180. Huge, yes. Yeah. Well, more, it's like turned right on its head. It's, it's totally different. Yeah, where do you think that change started? Where did that come from? Um, I think it started um, probably um, post-September 11 or earlier. I think that triggered a lot of very negative views about um, refugees and refugees from uh, particular source countries. I think it was very, um, uh, it became very discriminatory at that time. And then I think words like, um, we will say who comes to this country mm. uh, and uh, the Tampa. And um, interestingly with the Tampa, New Zealand took those people and um, in some of the New Zealand papers and magazines now, they're showcasing those people in their uh, early, well, adult life, early 30s now. What's the Tampa? The Tampa was the boat that uh, had the Norwegian captain that sought the people on board sought asylum here uh, and our government said no. 
So uh, so that was one case in point. But then I would never be saying it's just one government or the government of the day or even this government because subsequently people in the other side of politics said, if you come by boat, you will never settle here, you know. And then it was that government that established mandatory detention in the first place. And we're the only country in the world that has mandatory detention for asylum-seeking refugees. So, you know, I don't know what's happened to us, us I mean people like you and me, the nation, because uh, that compassionate, generous capacity to welcome the stranger and to make sure they have all the things they need to make a success of their life, not just to say, yes, we'll have you, but we're not going to do anything for you. Um, Because I think history has shown that that um, uh, nurturing and settling and helping and healing gives us the best citizens as a nation. So it's really nation building that I'm talking about. Yes, I remember hearing somewhere, I think it might have been from Peter Dutton, so I put a pin in it to fact check, so I'm putting it to you. Um, I heard that we don't take the largest amount of refugees, but the ones we do take, we resettle them the best, or we put individually, we put more resources into resettlement, I suppose. That's a fairly general sort of statement. I mean, I think what you often hear uh, from his department, Mm -hmm. and I mean, I just think the name of his department is enough to show us all as citizens what the changes are. When I started working in this field of teaching English to speakers of other languages and settling people, Immigration Department was like our right hand, our absolute partner, because they were involved in settlement. They employed their own Mm -hmm. social workers and so on, but they were called the Department of Immigration and Citizenship, the Department of Immigration and Ethnic Affairs, the Department of Immigration, Local Government and Ethnic Affairs. It was about people. Mm -hmm. It was about settlement. The ethos was quite outstanding. And what have we now? The Department of Immigration and Border Protection. So all those years, generations, our history was about who, who is coming and uh, how are we going to maximise their potential so that they can be great citizens. Now it's about fear. It's about our borders. Who can we keep out? How can we prove that everybody who comes in is a 100% um, good person or, you know what I mean? It's the focus has gone off the people who made such brilliant settlers. Yes. Um, how have you seen refugees fit into the local community? Because like, people don't really think about refugees being on their street and their children going to their schools. How do they, the ones in Brisbane... How are they going? Well, look, going back to the uh, the times, the very first students I ever had when I started in this field in the 1970s, the early 1970s, even before Saigon fell, came from Cyprus. And oh. they were not called refugees at that time. They were probably coming under what was loosely be termed family reunion, and I'm sure they had a choice. But Cyprus was at war with Turkey, And to this day, Nicosia is still the only divided city in the world. But having said that, so my first experience ever was with young people from 
um, Cyprus who had come to family to be settled in Brisbane. Now, their families were already in the community and when I look at where some of those people are, for example, one young girl I taught when she was 12 years old without any English, uh, years later I was at the university at some old ladies preventing osteoporotic clinic sort of a thing, okay, you know, yes. some medical reason, and I look up at the door and I see associate professor and then this person's name. Well, I was so thrilled. So in my experience... If you receive people and if they get the right uh, programs and capacities and can develop themselves, you know, the, their, their outcomes are the same as if you were born here. And there would have been some trauma, but that would have been huge and that would have been whole family. Then when I look at the Indo-Chinese who came, it was very, very different depending whether you were urban, whether you were rural, whether your family was very well educated but had been um, tortured in the re-education camps, whether your family were fishermen or farmers. Uh, all of that depended the size of your family. Uh, but I think a lot of those people settled in the Inala community and they are absolutely uh, 100% part of that community. Many have moved away from that area into other areas or their children have, but they really changed the face of that suburb. And I used to go to so many Vietnamese weddings or functions and so on, and it was the ordinary people, uh, the, we, you know, Australian expression like the salt of the earth, people who were good to their neighbours and kind to their neighbours and shared what they had. So I never saw any signs of them not fitting in. Um, and with different groups over the years, you know, some of the people from um, El Salvador, uh, Chile, Guatemala, they might have settled more in the suburbs around Acacia Ridge or also Inala because you have to remember affordable housing is a big feature of uh, post-arrival settlement. And in those days, the Department of Immigration, if you can believe this, were also in housing. They had hostels, they had government flats that were subsidised. And I can remember when the families came from the Balkan Wars, there was often um, a mother and father, often with what they called a, um, you know, a marriage that suddenly had been very wonderful and still was wonderful, but suddenly there were enmity between uh, Croatian and Serbian or Catholic and Muslim, you know, that sort of thing. So they were people often with mixed marriages, one or two children, and a lot of them settled in the Kuparu area because that's where the government flats were. Some settled at Yangabar, which is now some very expensive apartment site. So the housing and jobs and English language have always been so important in the settlement of people and I have never seen anybody who's been through our schools and our programs not contribute not just a hundred percent but maybe 110 or 120 percent back to the community and their achievements are astonishing you know there's um, there's a young doctor Hazara girl who is uh, now doing a specialty in medicine uh, there are dentists, there are pharmacists, and I'm not saying you just have to have been a graduate at uni to be a successful citizen. I see them when I go to the market, still running their family um, 
fruit stalls and fruit shops, students that I've known. Um, I love going into different um, parts of Brisbane and depending on what the area is, there's always somebody who'll come up and know you or remember your name or remember having met you. And um, I think they look on that very, very high quality, good settlement as something that gave them a new life and they so appreciate it. Back to her interview with Adele Rice, a teacher who worked with refugee children for a majority of her working life. Right now we're talking about learning English and the Brisbane Language School she was principal of for many, many years. You were head teacher at Milpera yes. High School, an intensive English language perception centre. How was that school set up? Well, it was probably set up uh, because the numbers increased so massively after the Vietnam War and we had many, many thousands of Indo-Chinese coming. Uh, the whole history of teaching English to speakers of other languages, especially in schools, didn't really start until the early 1970s. So it started really under a Fraser government and then it was picked up and run with by the uh, Whitlam government. And Kim Beasley Senior was the Minister for Education and there was so much work done and so much investment of resources into schools. Some of those schools were called disadvantaged in inverted commas, but it meant they were in areas where a lot of immigrants and refugees settled. So all the young people who lived in those areas benefited from those um, from those things. So I've always said that, um, politically speaking, people like Ian McPhee was in fact the best Minister for Immigration that I ever served under and Kim Beasley Senior the best Minister for Education because it took education to all those kids who didn't um, hitherto have it. Now at that time the demography in Brisbane was such that you know there was no one school or one place and so um, the programs were uh, in bits of other schools or in halls and we even had a program in the city in a city building and then when the Indo-Chinese came, they didn't fit there. So they, they built a temporary school in the grounds of Corinda High School. And that came about because Wakehall Hostel was the big reception place where all the newcomers came. And it was on the train line. So it was a very easy, effective and cost-effective method of getting the kids to one spot to have this intensive service. You know, there were beliefs over the years and I think currently, and they're really good beliefs if the world were perfect, uh, good educational philosophies that say things like, and the same would apply in medicine, every child should be able to go to their local school and get exactly the right program they need. I wish. Uh, my belief is you need the specialist training for the teachers and the specialist programs in order to intervene early and maximise the potential of that student, particularly once they're past the age of 11 or 12. Um, because when we didn't have those programs in schools, uh, kids didn't flourish to the same extent. And so the school came about largely because of the need. It was a very needs-based school and uh, Milpera was built at Chelmer. 
Now, Chelma is a very, a fairly affluent, leafy western suburbs area, uh, and kids on the whole would never be able to afford to live in that area, but it was access. So mm-hmm. again, it was straight down the train line, and it was very forward-looking of the people in the education in the special ed services who put that school there because it was even before the Circle Line bus. So even today, Milpera students live in 60, 70 different suburbs, but they can all come and get a specialised service rather than having three going to this school and six to that school and eight somewhere else, but none of them really getting what they need. So it's been very successful and the turnover has been very high, maybe close now to 14,000. Yeah, how big is the school, like with your... Because you wouldn't have specific grades, you'd just have, based on age, you'd have it based on the knowledge where it's up to at that point? Yes, you're That'd right, be... actually. It is based loosely on age and and particularly on their previous education and the amount of English they've got. And um, it's it's got a certain capacity of just over 200 and it can't really you can't just keep having more and more because Mm -hmm. the kids don't stay there forever either so it's a school that is the reception or base part of a two-prong program or three-prong whatever so you can imagine if you were you're now a uni student but if you arrived just a couple of years ago and these were still your goals to get, you know, do matriculation and go to uni. You need a bit of time on your side and the specialist service to help you to do it fast. So Milpera sends its students to a number of other schools. So what they get in that first time, you know, and the average length of time varies because if you came from um, a, a very... Uh, affluent school in South America or in Switzerland or Korea or Japan, you would have had very good curriculum knowledge in the in the in the content areas. You'd know your science and you'd be good at maths and so on. And you would need to learn English in order to access those subjects here. But that might take you a much shorter time. It might take you a semester or uh, a semester and a half to do that. But if you were coming from a rural area in Afghanistan and you were a girl and you'd never been to school, or if you were coming from um, Eritrea or Ethiopia or Somalia and you'd been in a refugee camp for the last 10 or 12 years of your life, then you're not, you, you, you know, everybody is not exactly the same. So even in the one family, you could have people with different experiences. Mm. So Milpera is graded not with conventional gradings, but with language. So you have beginner's classes and then they progress to the next post-beginner's class. And then they have year-level preparation where what the teachers select to teach approximates what could be being taught in the high school at that time. The difference is with the specialisation they have, they can make that mainstream curriculum accessible to students who don't have the English. Whereas some of these children who don't have the literacy in mother tongue and in fact have many different mother tongues because they've been from you know everywhere in the world looking for refuge or to a lot of different camps, 
they might be at Milpera for a year and a half or two years and they would still need more help when they leave. Um, ES illness, it's not like an injection where you can get it and you've got it and you're on your way. It takes a long time for that to develop. As, as you know, when you're a, a native speaker and you're studying at uni and you're having to write uh, academic essays and read academic things and footnotes and so on, it's a very long journey for everyone, but for people who've started in a different place, in a different language, or who in fact never got the chance to start education at all, it's a life journey. But I've seen them do it. We've sat down with Adele Rice, a woman who has worked for most of her life in the resettlement of refugees in Australia. This interview was recorded on June 3rd, the last day of Reconciliation Week, Marbo Day. So, um, finally, something you really want people to know about the refugee situation or refugees, something that you find yourself just wishing people knew. Well, I think education about it, and uh, I do a lot of um, talks for different people, uh, different groups. It might be uh, women's service groups like Zonta International or Seroptimist or Rotary or Probus or schools or Red Cross, because I think a lot of people form views and opinions without much information or, you know, on the basis of not a lot of information and so um, I think I think it's really important that they understand why it is that people come and uh, what our response as a nation you know to, to try and think and analyze about why it's so different now from many years ago and also what they're going to talk to to their relatives their friends and their neighbors and interestingly enough, today is Mabo Day. Yes. And I think it's really significant that many of the First Nation people uh, and the aunties and the uncles and so on will often say to refugee people, and I've seen them at the different rallies and talks and things that I go to, you are welcome in this country. You know, it's our country and you are welcome here. And uh, so, and and yet I think... In our own country, there are people who uh, haven't had the full opportunity to learn all the information about refugee backgrounds and settlements and so on. And if you just rely on headlines now and again or on a bad story. Um, But in my heart, I think we could be a lot more generous. I think our intake uh, could be a lot higher and I think we could do a lot more in source countries. It's really sad when you think countries like uh, Jordan, for example, and Turkey uh, have not got large populations and they take many, many more refugees than we do. If you compare us even with Canada, uh, we've taken 12,000 Syrian refugees. I'm not sure if they're all here. Canada's taken nearly 30,000 in the same time. Um, even countries like New Zealand seem to be doing a lot more. So I do think we could do a lot more than we're doing and I think we could do it with a greater amount of compassion. So I think um, apologising is a good thing 
uh, to do. But I also wish that we could have an amnesty, which is probably really pie in the sky. But we have a very small number of people here now in limbo. I think it's fewer than 20,000 and fewer than uh, 3,000 in Queensland. You know, the number of people who just used to and still do overstay their visas and who are really illegal because mm-hmm. they don't have a valid visa and they've been holidaying or working, whatever. Um, well, there's often more than 20,000 of them at any time. So I really can't see that a nation with a community, and I think there's enough of the compassionate, kind people in the community and government and non-government agencies, we could easily absorb 20,000 people and save them from prolonged time in limbo, creating more havoc and more mental health issues in their lives. Yes, I think understanding the history of it is important for Australians because... Like, in all likelihood, the average Australian is probably descendant from a refugee. Yes, so or it's a very yes, likely yes. that, you know, you're a descendant from one. So, yes, thank you for coming in. Thank you, and thank you for those insightful questions. That's all right. That was me, Danica Hill, talking to Adele Rice. You are listening to The Only Human Podcast. Only Human is a weekly program on social justice, disability rights, psychology, social research and mental wellness. You can listen in Brisbane on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM and set digital on DAB Plus radios. Love community media? You can support 4ZZZ by subscribing or making a donation at 4ZZZFM.org.au.